Good morning. Um, just continuing the kind of responsive thing, or good morning. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I'd kind of go with it, see if it's still there. Um, once again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 this morning. Uh, it's the famous chapter, uh, as Mark said, describes what happens uh, just before Jesus is crucified, the night, the eve before Jesus is crucified. If you remember, over the last few weeks, over the last month or so, really, we've looked at some of the main characters in the story, people like Judas and Peter and Pilate and Herod. We've also explored some of the key themes that Luke draws out through this chapter. If you recall, we've looked at what the cross meant for Jesus, also looked at what it means for us today. Among other things, we'll see what it means in terms of community, what it means in terms of forgiveness, what it means in terms of hope for the future. What I want to do this morning is look at another one of the main themes, the key themes going on here in this chapter. Right in the middle of verse 53, right in the middle of the passage, Jesus makes what I think is a pretty odd statement. He's talking with the chief priests and the temple guards who had come to arrest him. He turns to them and says, but this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. It's as though... Jesus is saying that although all of these incidents take place at night, although they're all happening in the literal darkness, the physical darkness is merely a representation, an illustration of something that goes way, way deeper. It's like there's this physical darkness that blinds the eyes and makes it hard for us to see in the natural, and then there's this spiritual darkness that blinds the heart and blinds the mind and blinds the soul. It it kind of seeps inside of us. As I want to show you this morning, this spiritual darkness is one of the main things that Jesus came to deal with. There are three separate episodes here in this passage I want to try and unpack for you. The first two, they're going to reveal something to us about our condition, the darkness that sometimes can be, can be found in our own lives. The third one will tell us what Jesus has come to do about it. As we're going to see, each one of these three different episodes, it, it paints a bit of a picture of the rejection that Jesus experienced as he moved towards the cross. First of all, we're going to see the soldiers reject him. Then his own disciples, his closest friends, reject him. Finally, even his own father rejects him. Let's start with the soldiers' rejection of Jesus. All through these last hours, these final hours before Jesus dies, he's continually mocked by the people around him. When the soldiers put the crown of thorns on his head, remember they're mocking his claim to be a king. As he hangs on the cross, the crowds who are gathered round, they add their voices to the general mockery. They say, well look, if he saved others, let him save himself. Here in the passage I want us to look at today, Jesus is being mocked over his claims to be a prophet, someone who can anticipate what's going to happen in the future. Verse 63, the guards in charge of Jesus, they began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. They're saying, if you're really a prophet, why can I do this to you? slap. 
I mean, if you really were a prophet, God wouldn't let that kind of thing happen to you. In other words, they were looking at the apparent senselessness of Jesus' suffering, that they looked at him in his weakness, they looked at his vulnerability, they looked at everything going wrong in his life, and they mocked him. They said, God wouldn't work like this. You're no saviour, you can't even save yourself. The awful irony being, as they mocked, they missed the greatest act of salvation and love and wisdom in the entire history of the world, simply because it didn't fit into their small little categories. Let's try and apply this. What, if anything, can we learn from this? Well, I reckon there's a natural spiritual blindness that when we look out and when we see darkness in the world, when we perhaps observe tragedies and suffering and evil and things like that, we can conclude there mustn't be a God. I mean, God wouldn't allow something like that to happen. If there is a God, he must be a fool or he must be bad or or something like that. But please, let's not miss the dreadful irony of this. Here are these people in this story looking right at Jesus. They're concluding God wouldn't work like this. God couldn't allow this kind of suffering in somebody's life if he was really with them. Yet all the time, Jesus was doing precisely what he should be doing. Just think about it. What if the story had played out differently? What if Jesus, at this moment, had snapped his fingers, down comes fire from heaven, all of the guards destroyed, completely obliterated, wiped out. He gets up on a horse that handily just happens to be wandering past at that point. He rallies the troops and he rides to victory in Jerusalem. All he would have saved in that instance, all he would have saved people from would have been Rome. If he wanted to save us from darkness itself, from sin and hell and death, God was doing exactly what he had to do. But all the time, the people back then couldn't figure it out. How about you? When you look at the problems in the world, when you look at problems maybe even in your own life, do you conclude, well, God couldn't be working through this? Or in your darkest moments, maybe there isn't even a God. Or God couldn't possibly bring anything good out of this. If you find yourself criticizing or doubting or mocking like that, ultimately, I want to say this gently and sensitively, ultimately, you're only hurting yourself. I don't know if you've ever been on an airplane. You're down on the ground and there's a storm brewing, and the lunatic pilot still decides to take off. Happened to me a couple of years ago. Uh, It's one of those unnerving moments where people, just as the plane's about to take off, start putting out their mobile phones, texting people, calling their loved ones, saying, if I don't make it, I just want you to know I really love you. Kind of breeds a sense of nervousness on the flights. Now, I did happen to be sitting next to someone called David Devonish. Some of you may know him. And I kind of figured there were still unfulfilled prophecies over his life. And as far as I was aware, none of them involved him being the lone survivor of a plane crash. So I kind of figured that I was probably going to be okay but still slightly nervous when the plane finally breaks through the clouds you get up to 30,000 feet 
Where's the storm at that point? It's way down there. It looks like it's just an inch or two above the ground. From the ground, all you can see is the storm. Above the cloud cover, there's a whole universe of light. The clouds haven't affected it one bit. Even if you can't see the sun, it is still there. Now listen, no matter how bad things get in your life, no matter how bad things get out there in the world, it doesn't affect the loving purposes of God. They're no more affected than the sun and the stars are somehow affected by the clouds of a storm. The whole point of this passage is here is Jesus. Everything appears to be going wrong. It seems like God couldn't possibly be with him. God couldn't possibly be working in his life. Yet greatness and glory come out of it. I believe right now, God would simply say to some of you, just because you don't see me working doesn't mean I'm not. First of all then, the soldiers reject Jesus. Their mockery highlights just one aspect, the spiritual darkness that perhaps can come into our hearts, and if it does, it certainly needs to change. And if we don't change, we're going to find it hard to persevere. And ultimately, if we rage against God in the midst of it, we'll end up hurting ourselves. The soldiers reject Jesus. Second, the disciples reject Jesus. It's a famous incident, isn't there, where three times Peter denies ever having known Jesus. But even worse than that is Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Verse 47, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Two things going on in this kiss that we could very easily miss. First of all, there's an act of independence. Back then, any group of disciples, the disciple was never permitted to greet his teacher first because that kind of implied equality. Uh, A disciple would always greet the other disciples first and leave the teacher to last out of deference to him. And so when Judas approaches Jesus and makes this show of kissing him, it wasn't just a signal to the mob. It was a deliberate insult. It was an act of independence. If you like, it was Judas saying to Jesus, I'm as good as you are. It was an act of independence. Secondly, it was a betrayal of intimacy. Now think about it. It's much worse, isn't it, to be attacked, not by an enemy, not by a complete stranger, but by a friend. As David puts it in Psalm 55, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. But it was my companion, my friend. His speech was smooth as butter, but war was in his heart. The whole point is, the more someone has cared for you, the more someone has done for you, the more someone has loved you, if you wrong them, if you let them down, if you lie to them, if you cheat on them, the closer you are, the deeper their pain. Just to illustrate the point, 
Let's say one of you who perhaps I've never seen before in my life. You come up to me at the end of the meeting and you say, you know what, I absolutely hated your preaching today and I'm leaving and I'm never coming back to this church again. Now, in all honesty, I would feel bad about that. In the moment, I would feel bad, not necessarily for a long time, not necessarily for the rest of my life, but in the moment, I'd feel bad. But if after the service... One of you who perhaps I know very, very, very well, maybe you've been in the church for years and years, we've been good friends for ages. If one of you came up to me afterwards and said, look, Jonathan, absolutely hated your preaching today. I'm leaving, I'm never coming back. That would go a lot deeper, wouldn't it? That'd be a lot harder to take. But if after the service, my wife came up to me, and said, Jonathan, I absolutely hated your preaching today. I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. That goes infinitely beyond that. Now, this description of Judas greeting Jesus with a kiss that isn't really a kiss is the ultimate betrayal. It cut deep because of the relationship. And really, if you think about it, it provides a pretty accurate illustration of what sin is. You know, people nowadays, they freak out over the whole idea of sin. Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, oh no, not sin again today. People don't like the word sin. Even worse, it's being branded as a sinner. Now look, I can understand that. So over the years, people have taken that word sinner and have abused people with it. Kind of gives you permission to oppress the other person or to marginalize the other person. That's not in any way the biblical understanding of sin. Let me try and give you a biblical definition of sin. It's an illustration I recently heard a guy called Tim Keller use, so credit to him rather than to me. But I want you to imagine, if you don't rate the illustration, it's his fault, not mine. But I want you to imagine a single woman adopting a baby boy to be her son. And over the years, she raises him. Of course, that entails an incredible number of sacrifices, sacrifices of time, sacrifices of money, sacrifices of her career, but she doesn't mind at all because she loves him so much. She doesn't regret a bit of it. Now imagine, eventually, he reaches the age and goes off to college. It's like she has sacrificed so much of her life to get him to that point. She is so incredibly proud of him. But right in the middle of the first term, without asking her advice, without even telling her, without giving her any warning at all, he just drops out. Not only that, he withdraws all of the money that she has put in the bank for him and buys clothes and travels around and parties like there's no tomorrow. Doesn't even hear from him for months on end, no contact at all. Then one day, completely out of the blue, he shows up at the door. He walks in and he gives her a kiss on the cheek. He says, mum, kind of guessing you're probably a bit mad with me, probably slightly unhappy, but it's just the way I am. Uh, And I'm in a bit of trouble, if truth be told. I I really need some cash from you. So how about it? Now, what's she going to say? She's probably going to say, look, I love you, but we have a bit of a problem in our relationship. 
that kiss that you just greeted me with, it's not a genuine kiss. It's like you're not really loving me. You're using me. And so you need to deal with that problem before we do anything else. Don't you see? You can't just walk in. You can't just kind of come back in like this. There's a problem. It's like there's a barrier between us. It's going to have to be dealt with and worked through. I want to work through it because I love you and I care for you. But we must address this. Now, perhaps you can imagine him saying, why are you being so moody all of a sudden? And she's going to say, moody? If you think I'm being moody, if you think there's nothing that you have to do, if you think you can just waltz in here and kiss me and keep on going with this relationship as though nothing has happened, then you don't understand how relationships work. Unless you figure that out, the rest of your life is going to be an absolute disaster for you. Now here's the point. What if there is a God? Now if there's not a God, our lives effectively they're meaningless. It's just an accident. It's all by chance. We really weren't made for anything in particular. There's no ultimate purpose in life. But if there is a God, he's given us everything. He created us. He sustains us. He keeps us alive every second of the day. But isn't it true that we have this tendency to take, to grab hold of all the things he's given us, existence itself, our health, our talents, our abilities, our stuff. We, we, We take everything And a lot of the time, we have this tendency, don't we, to live as independent operators. And every so often we say, well, it's the start of a new year, maybe I need to get a little more spiritual. Maybe I need to get a little more religious. I need a bit of peace in my life, especially when we're in a bit of trouble. Then then perhaps we go to church and maybe we even remember to dart up a few prayers just in case God listens and does something in response. Now, if God was a Star Wars kind of the force, if he was some kind of impersonal projection out there somewhere, well, that would be one thing. But he's not. The God of the Bible says, let me tell you who I am. Let me reveal to you who I am. Have a listen to how God chooses to describe himself to us in Isaiah chapter 49. He says, can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. God has the sheer audacity to use this picture of a mother who experiences the physiologically based overwhelming affection that comes as she looks at her newborn baby as her milk is coming up and says, do you know that kind of love? Do you know that kind of overwhelming love of a mother towards her child? Well, God says that is nothing compared to my love for you. All the time I made you for a relationship with me. 
I design you to know the greatest joy when you put me in the center of your life, not using me to get things and putting those other things in the center in place of me. Listen, I put you in the center of my heart. So when you reject me, it's as though you are trampling on me. Now return to the story of the son's treatment of his mother. Whether or not he did anything illegal, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but so what? That is almost an afterthought. It's nothing compared to what he really did wrong. He didn't so much break the mother's rules, although perhaps he did. Ultimately, he broke his mother's heart. Now, I want to suggest to you that is a pretty graphic picture of what sin is. Sin isn't just trampling on the laws of God, although it is that. Ultimately, it's trampling on the very heart of God. Which is why all sin, every act of independence, is at heart a betrayal of intimacy. And you know, one of the things this passage in Luke shows us is Judas isn't all that unusual. Remember when Jesus says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. How do they respond? What do they say? Do they turn to Jesus and say, I know exactly who you mean. We've had our suspicions over the last few years. It's Judas, isn't it? We all know he's different. I mean, we all went out preaching No one ever responded to his preaching. No one ever got saved with Judas. We all went out healing the sick. He never, ever saw anyone get better. We're all trying hard to imitate you, Jesus. He's the only proud one. He's the only selfish one. No, they didn't say that. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they all turn to one another. They say, who could it be? Is it me? Because Judas was no different at all from you or me or Peter or anybody. I don't want you to miss this. A kiss which is not a kiss, using God instead of centering your life on him, betraying God's intimacy, trampling on his heart, is so very commonplace that a lot of the time we don't even notice it. We don't even think of it as sin. It's as though we're blind to it. And we're also blind to the seriousness of it. I think it's a big part of what's wrong with us. So just to recap. Here's this spiritual darkness. Here's this spiritual blindness. First of all, perhaps we're unable to trust God when things are bad. We're also blind a lot of the time I think to the ways we betray the one who loves us the most which I guess begs the question well if that is what's going on in us how on earth are we going to deal with this well to find the answer I want us to look at the last rejection thirdly and finally Jesus father rejects him I want to very quickly Let's return to the passage we looked at last time I preached. Verse 39, Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual. This was commonplace for him. 
He would habitually go to the Mount of Olives to pray and relate and engage with his father. He went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Now we're not I'm going to spend long on this because we spent ages grappling with these verses last time I preached. At the very least, I want to ask this question. Why is it that Jesus doesn't show any sign of fear or anguish until he starts praying? I mean, it's supposed to be the other way around, isn't it? You, you, You feel some kind of anguish, you pray and things get better. It's like Jesus presents as someone who is fine, he starts praying and everything gets much worse. What's going on here? But if you remember from last time, we saw how Jesus began to experience, he began to get this foretaste, he began to anticipate the cup. Remember the cup which represents God's justice, God's holy wrath coming against the sins of the world, your sins, my sins. Jesus anticipates in that moment what it's going to mean for him to carry that judgment from his Father against the sins of the world. Let's try and put all of this together. In the story I told earlier on, what's the consequence of the son's sin against the mother? It's the loss of the relationship. And what's the consequence of our sin against God? Again, it's the loss of relationship. Do you realize what that means? For the son in that story to lose the relationship with the mother, if he doesn't patch that up, if he doesn't mend the relationship, he's going to have a pretty lousy life. And if we don't mend our relationship with God, listen, we were built for the presence of God. We have to have the presence of God to be fully human, to be fully alive, to live as God designed. And so to be utterly cut off from the presence of God is agony. Ultimately, it's hell. Now, What Jesus is beginning to experience here is way beyond that. You say, what do you mean way beyond that? How could anything be worse? Think about it. And do you remember what I said? If a stranger rejects you, that is infinitely less painful than if a close friend rejects you. Similarly, if God rejects you, that's unthinkably awful. But how much more so for God the Father to reject his own Son? We have to realize that the Father and the Son have had an eternal relationship of love that is infinitely greater than anything we know. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begins to experience the anguish, the agony of having his Father turn away from him. So why did he do it? What's going on here? Well, I want you to bear with me. Before I finish, and there were cheers earlier at the anticipation of this finishing. We'll finish in a little while. Before we finish, I want to try and give you one final picture of what's going on in this chapter. If you remember, right at the beginning of time, God placed Adam 
in the Garden of Eden with a tree. He said to Adam, obey me about the tree. Whatever you do, don't eat its fruit. In other words, God says to Adam back in the beginning, obey and you will live. But he didn't. Centuries later, Jesus, who's described in the Bible as the second Adam, he's also in a garden, not Eden this time, but Gethsemane. And there's another tree looming large on the horizon. This time it's a cross. And again, God says, I want you to obey me about the tree. I want you to see the contrast here. The first Adam was told, obey me and you will live. The second Adam, Jesus, was told, obey me and I will crush you. It's like Jesus was told something that God has never said to anybody before and will never say to anybody again. He said, I want you to obey me. And if you obey me, it's going to mean utter abandonment. And because our relationship was infinitely greater than a relationship between anybody else, your sorrow and your pain and your misery will be infinitely greater than hell itself. God says to the first Adam, obey and you will live. And he didn't. God says to the second Adam, obey and I will crush you. But he did obey. Why? Why would he do that? Was it to get glory? No, he had glory before, all the glory of heaven. He laid aside that glory. He emptied himself of that glory to come to earth. Why did he do it? Did he do it to get a relationship with the Father? Well, obviously not. He enjoyed perfect intimacy with his Father in heaven before. What on earth would Jesus get out of this? Why would Jesus go through all of this? just one thing. Us, you, forgiven and loved, a relationship. Don't you see, when Jesus died, the minute he died, in Luke 23, the next chapter, verse 44, it says, darkness, there's that that word again, darkness came over the whole land, for the sun stopped shining. It's like the darkness came into him. He took the darkness. He bore the darkness. He carried the darkness. He took the consequences of what we've done. He literally died in the dark, the ultimate dark, so that we could live in the light, so that we can enjoy the light that never, ever, ever goes out. Do you believe that? Because to the degree you believe it, to the degree you're melted by it, to the degree it wrecks you for all else but living for Him, to that degree the darkness of your own heart will start to lift. To that degree you better start to trust God even when things are bad. To that degree, you'll be able to start to put God in the center instead of using him and betraying him. In other words, seeing Jesus take the ultimate darkness for you is the only thing that will start to lift the darkness from you. And so as I draw to a close, I want to give you just a moment to reflect for yourself on where this message lands for you. 
When Luke calls the moment of Jesus' arrest a time when darkness reigns, as he then describes all the events that surround this, I believe in the midst of it, he's inviting us to examine our own hearts. I don't know. Maybe it feels to you right now as though you're in the midst of a storm. It's like it's a struggle for you to see past the darkness. Maybe the detail is similar to what I was talking about today, kind of three different rejections. Maybe rejection runs deep in your life. I mean, you know something of the pain of being rejected. I want to ask you, will you allow the darkness to define you? Will you allow it to eat away, sap your face? Or in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the darkness, will you keep reaching out to Jesus, looking for his light to invade, to penetrate your darkness? Or maybe in some way you have invited darkness into your heart by centering your life on things other than God. It's like every time we choose to ignore him or reject his will for our life, we are effectively betraying the one who loves us the most. We're trampling all over the intimacy he so, so wants us to enjoy. Right now, Jesus, as it were, is standing in front of you. And he's calling you to respond. Will you, today, embrace the forgiveness and the blessing that Jesus offers those who put their trust in his finished work on the cross? Will you just reject him? Or will you choose to live in the good of the relationship that he died to make possible for you? Will you, for whatever reason, choose to stay in the darkness? Or will you turn towards the light?